Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 59, The Trials of Ulysses, A Decade of Failure. Today's episode changes the naming convention and finishes the series on Ulysses S. Grant. We are no longer asking, who is this man? Today we are answering the question, for better and for worse. When in 1852, the 4th U.S. Infantry Regiment received orders redeploying to the West Coast, Captain Ulysses Grant expected the adventure of a lifetime before him. As regimental quartermaster, he would have challenges worthy of his time and energy, far more exciting and interesting than the humdrum paper filing of most days. And yet, he experienced some amount of trepidation over the news as well. For one, he had married and now had a young son. Should they accompany him and the thousand or so soldiers, officers, and dependents in the regiment? All paths to California were slow and often dangerous. No matter how one journeyed there, by horse, by wagon, by ship, or in some combination, it would take weeks, probably months, of dirt and discomfort. And as it turned out, Julia was now pregnant again. Considering the situation, Ulysses and Julia agreed that she and little Fred should go visit the Grant family, Jesse and Hannah, in Galena, and then return to her own parents at Whitehaven, Missouri. This entailed no little tension, as Ulysses' father, Jesse Grant, had absolutely no love for the dance or slavery. He could at least tolerate Julia and the coming brood of grandchildren, however. In any event, Julia had at least a little taste for luxury herself, and the West Coast in those days did not have a great many amenities to speak of. The great cities of the future still existed only as boom towns amid a gold rush. Dusty gold miners rubbed shoulders with would-be merchants in saloons peddling dodgy whiskey. Californios, Americans, and European immigrants all swarmed onto the gold fields, looking for wealth or a fresh start. That was, in fact, why the Fourth had to go out in the first place. America would find it easier to acquire the West Coast than to manage it in the years before the railroads finally spanned the continent, much as Mexico had before them. Somewhat distinct from Mexico, however, America had clear institutions of regional political control via federalism, and this shaped the response. It was normal for peoples to mix and establish their own local political structures without any challenges from the national center of gravity in Washington. Indeed, California would soon enough rise to add its own star to the national flag. This was an event that Captain Grant cared about, at least by implication. He supported the newly elected President Zachary Taylor strongly, and one of Taylor's major issues was California. Call it irony, or fate, or just history. But the same slaveholding Southern general who fought the Mexican-American War also opposed it in principle, and then made the permanent inclusion of a new free state one of his defining policies. Grant had hoped to vote for Taylor in the last election, but at the time had not settled into his new home. In any case, Zachary Taylor had already passed into the grave. By the time Grant and one of the first groups of the 4th Infantry soldiers arrived in New York City, the great Henry Clay had also passed away, a generation of statesmen exiting the scene. Indeed, Captain Grant went down to Washington, but found the city closed for business. He wanted to have his debts cleared, 
a case of the money stolen from his keeping in Mexico. But Congress had declared a special recess in honor of Clay, and so he returned to New York empty-handed. On July 5th, the regiment set sail on the steam vessel Ohio, bound for Panama. Unfortunately, the War Department proved much less capable of planning than Captain Grant. They neglected to actually book the cabins of the Ohio. Therefore, the 700-odd soldiers, officers, and dependents camped out on the deck of the vessel. Had this been a purely military transport, and the passengers all soldiers, that might have been just fine. But this was a passenger vessel, loaded with four times the human beings that it should have been aboard. Quartermaster General Thomas Jessup appears to have been responsible for the horrendous conditions, exhibiting poor attention to detail and little forethought. In addition, Panama was not necessarily the most popular route to California in those days, and for good reason. Despite intermittent chaos in Nicaragua, a great many travelers preferred that route. Not coincidentally, Commodore Vanderbilt, one of the greatest industrial and commercial titans of the age, spent a great deal of time and money making the Nicaragua route a success. In practical terms, it was often easier to move up the rivers to Lake Nicaragua and then take the relatively short journey overland to the Pacific coast. That said, the Panama route might have been just fine had the War Department properly supervised the transportation on site as well, but it did not. When Grant and the hundreds of exhausted soldiers on the Ohio docked at Colon, also called Aspinwall at the time, they found little made ready for them. Worse, high summer was also the rain season, and half the city now lay underwater. Grant recounts that people walked about on elevated platforms. Grant recounts, At that time the streets of the town were eight or ten inches underwater, and foot passengers passed from place to place on raised footwalks. July is at the height of the wet season on the Isthmus. At intervals the rain would pour down in streams, followed in not many minutes by a blazing tropical summer sun. These alternate changes from rain to sunshine were continuous in the afternoons. I wondered how any person could live many months in Aston Wall, and wondered still more why anyone tried. Now before continuing, I must pause to explain something. Quite often in this series, we have descriptions of rivers and roads and cities, and even today, you can see these on your online map program of choice. True, rivers may have changed course, roads have been rebuilt, and cities greatly expanded, Yet surprisingly often, you can still clearly see old battlefields and pathways. This is not the case with central Panama. The creation of the Panama Canal in the 20th century required damming up the Chagres River, creating Gatun Lake. However, imagine, if you will, a party of rough-looking American soldiers taking huge log canoes upriver against the current, slowly pulled along by hired locals. It rained half the day, and the sun blazed the other half. Imagine them traveling in this way for days on end, until they reached Cruces, a village not far off from modern-day Gamboa. There, Grant expected to find a mule train to take the regiment and baggage of the rest of the way towards Panama City. There was no mule train. Instead, he found that the War Department had somehow retained the services of a more or less broke American emigre, who tried to string Grant along. What, specifically, he was attempting to accomplish is unclear, perhaps just playing for time and hoping he could make a buck out of the business. Fed up, Captain Grant dismissed the man and hired his own animals in violation of army regulations. 
The prices were, charitably, utterly absurd under any other circumstances. But the tidal wave of fortune seekers racing to find gold in California had caused the price of any beast of burden to quadruple. Yet at least there was some transportation, and he began to lead the party single file over the mountains. Yet another uglier problem now reared its head. Disease. The old enemy that no soldier can fight, and against whom courage is mere vanity. Grant, fortunately, did not fall ill, but many of the party did. Exactly what struck down so many is unclear, although Grant thought it was cholera. That easily could have been the case, as cholera can spread very quickly through tainted water supplies. These symptoms are both disgusting and perhaps horrifying. The disease so cruelly afflicts the intestines that sick individuals can die in just a few hours of misery, although others linger for days. Basic treatment is remarkably simple. Just sugar and water to supply the weakened body with the essential nutrients to recover. Unfortunately for the 4th Infantry, in 1852 no one understood the disease yet. Germ theory was then in its infancy and John Snow in London would not perform his groundbreaking analysis for another two years. So there in Panama, hundreds of sick Americans waited and recovered or died. Captain Grant stayed behind to help the sick recover. The remainder of the party he dispatched on ahead to Panama City, where they would hopefully avoid falling ill themselves. Some among them still got sick anyway, however. Those men, women, and children in the impromptu camp either regained their strength or died. By the time the disease finished, a third of the party had passed into the grave. Those who survived did not forget how hard Grant labored to assist the ill. He had entirely too much to do, for the sick would be rendered almost entirely helpless by the disease. He was like a ministering angel to us all, said one of the survivors. Indeed, another recalled that Grant often slept just a few hours every night. It was indeed fortunate that he did not fall ill himself. After a week, the party moved out to Panama. Some were so weak they had to be carried along the trail. Some more died along the path, and those who arrived in Panama City found little to welcome them. Now, up to this point, we have not had much reason to mention Colonel Bonneville. He was a famous figure at the time, with books published about his Western adventures. However, it seems he lacked the ability to organize and control an expedition like this, mixed with soldiers and civilians. By accounts, both from Grant's autobiography and the writings of others, it seems that, well, Captain Grant functionally exercised leadership in Panama. Bonneville spoke no Spanish and he evidently didn't think to hire a man to translate along the way. Unfortunately, Bonneville still had the higher rank, which caused further illness and death. The steamship Golden Gate lay at anchor in the harbor of Panama City, waiting to travel towards San Francisco Bay. But the authorities had quarantined it because of... cholera. Bonneville simply disregarded this and began immediately loading the group under his care aboard. Fresh sickness broke out, Grant once again took charge. In this case, he took over an anchored, broken-down boat to serve as a makeshift hospital as yet more felt of this disease and were consigned to the sea. Finally, however, the sickness ran its course, and they all proceeded to California. Grant, though, received just one last kick from fate on the way out. A local paper wrote a story condemning the failure of the army officers to protect the travelers, and included Grant by name. 
he never would have much use for reporters or editors. After much toil and death, Grant arrived with the remnants of the regiment in San Francisco on August 17, 1852. This location had changed just very slightly from when we last discussed California. The little village of Yerba Buena, with fewer than a thousand souls all told, changed its name to match that of the bay, all the better to greet the many, many new arrivals. Perhaps too many new arrivals. By the end of 1849 alone, the town had grown to more than 25,000, a rate of growth impossible to comprehend. By the time Grant arrived, it had swollen many thousands further, and that only includes the permanent population. An absolute flood of gold miners and traders moved in and out of the city constantly, barely countable and less documented. The first problem for Grant and the infantrymen was getting off the boat, or more accurately, not getting off the boat. Soldiers passing through the city has a tendency to suddenly lose their uniforms and melt into the ranks of the gold miners. Therefore, the regiment, or its tattered survivors at least, would not be allowed to leave until the officers could keep them all together and watch them closely. As an officer, however, Grant had a bit more license. He found San Francisco lively, and given its youth as a city, rather impressive. His feelings may have been soothed, too, by winning a sizable sum playing faro, a card game similar to Baccarat and very popular at the time. Given his character, we can be certain that Grant at least didn't cheat at cards, and if so, he must have been the only honest player in the city. Now, soon enough, the regiment would make its way all the way up to Columbia Barracks. Now, you won't find this on a map today, because following the division of the Oregon Territory into Oregon and Washington, the fortification received a new name, Fort Vancouver. The very site exists today as a national park devoted to education and recreation on the north bank of the Columbia River, with a still active military base around it. In fact, the same house that Grant lived in at the barracks not only still stands, but you can visit. And you will very likely have a much better time than Captain Grant did. Because after managing to survive the horrors of the trek through Panama, Grant entered into one of the most miserable times of his life. First, of course, Columbia Barracks lay rather far from any city. His only contact with his family, the better length of a continent away, came only in the form of odd letters. It seems that he and Julia wrote regularly, but the mails arrived only rarely, as it had to travel such a long way. Even when the mailbags arrived at San Francisco, the military post took time to deliver anything as far as Columbia Barracks. For the time being, at least, Grant discarded the notion of bringing Julia over, given his experience with the horrors of travel. To be entirely clear, most other travelers did not experience that level of sickness and death. But obviously Grant would not want to risk it, especially considering that he had two children to worry about, one of whom he had not even met. He would reconsider in the future, but it was always on his mind. Now for a time, the healthy environment was enough to take his mind off of such matters. Captain Grant rode freely, since the region seemed largely quiet with the arrival of the soldiers. And if you have ever visited the Pacific Northwest you can imagine the many breathtaking mountain landscapes he had to explore. But the problems began rather quickly, partly as a result of fallible men and partly from merciless nature. And even an avid writer such as Grant could not enjoy day after day on horseback without end. He therefore turned to business to occupy his time. First, he lent more or less all his savings to Alicia Camp, whom he had known well in Sackett's Harbor, 
The Camp family was prominent there and had lived in the area since the War of 1812, so to a degree they had a reputation. Alicia had also fought alongside Grant in Mexico, and he now purchased the rights to act as a sutler, a private commissary vendor at the fort. The venture went well, and poorly at the same time. Camp appeared to be doing very well for himself, and he even bought out Grant's interest in the store. However, he paid with debtor's notes, essentially a written IOU, for the time being. In the following year, though, he abandoned the store after a fire, took all of the money, and decamped back east. Unfortunately, Ulysses had the weaknesses as well as the virtues of an honest man. He did not pursue easy wealth exactly, but for such a good writer he had no horse sense to his name. He could not, and never would, excel in the world of trade and finance, and he would in the future get fooled again by seemingly legitimate businessmen. He considered things like debts a matter of honor, and could never quite understand when another man might just laugh at it. Though the idea of the grocery or Stutler store went nowhere, Grant still had time on his hands and a desire to make some money. His next attempt in the winter of 1852-53 was to cut ice and pack it onto a schooner. After he and another man loaded a hundred tons of the stuff, well, the vessel departed for San Francisco. But a sharp wind slowed the progress and delayed it by two weeks. The ice, feeling that it had evidently put up with this long enough, departed in the usual manner, and therefore wrecked another of Grant's ventures. In the spring of 1853, Grant had still not given up. Looking about, he decided that if ice wouldn't do, he might sell some vegetables to the hungry mouths of San Francisco. So he and some friends planted a large field of potato crops, plus onions and corn, intending to sell them in the markets for a few hundred dollars once the harvest came. In addition, he cut a large stand of timber to sell as fuel for the steamboats. Given that this was part-time farm work and labor, Grant expected to clear a sizable sum overall. However, the Columbia River in those days was no tame stream. When the annual snows melted, the river overran its banks. The flooding might have been exceptional in another river in another year, but rather ordinary for the Columbia. Yet Grant and the soldiers just didn't know the annual cycle. In any case, it ruined the crops and scattered the timber. At the end of the day, it was a near total loss, although at least they recovered and stacked some of the timber again. Following this, they tried another venture involving selling chickens to San Francisco, except all the chickens died on the way. And then, they put some of their rapidly dwindling funds to start a social club in San Francisco, except the man they hired as agent just stole the money and vanished. These were not fun times, in short. Captain Grant got through his duties day in and day out, but increasingly despondent through it all. Everything seemed to be going wrong. He stayed in the army for the pay, but that seemed rather meager just now. For a time, taking in the sights of the coast and seeing the booming business of San Francisco, Grant did start to consider settling there permanently. Sure, the Panama route was not something he would repeat or subject his family to, but a long sea voyage around South America could be done. But his bad luck made him reconsider the idea, and he was now starting to hope just to get away from the cursed Pacific with his life. Not too surprisingly, he turned to the bottle for company in these dark times. He wasn't the first soldier to get through hard days with harder drink, and he certainly wasn't the last. 
If there is an oddity in his habits, however, it's that he doesn't seem to have been much of a drinker. That is, even in middle age, Grant retained a very slender build. There may have been some other physiological issues, too, because contemporaries recalled that even a very small amount of liquor appeared to rapidly intoxicate him. He was, in any case, hardly alone. Habitual drunkenness among soldiers and officers alike was so common as to be entirely ignored. Furthermore, Grant did not in any case allow it to interfere with his duties. Reputedly, when a young George McClellan visited Fort Vancouver, Grant outfitted his expedition expertly. But McClellan believed that Grant had taken drink, and evidently never forgot the nuisance. One small consolation came when Grant received a promotion to full captain in late 1853. Until now, he had acted as captain, but his rank remained brevet or temporary. He transferred to Fort Humboldt to take over a company in his own right. And there, the depressed Grant ran right into, well, not so much trouble as nothing at all. Fort Humboldt, apart from the nearby Redwood Forest, had little to recommend it. Grant's company had a third of its authorized strength, and he had few duties to occupy him. More irritatingly, the commander, Robert Buchanan, ran his fort a bit stiffly, in the old army manner. It was a clean, well-oiled machine, and the inspections approved it heartily, but there wasn't a lot of flexibility. Through the long spring of 1854, Grant attended his work, but took very little joy in it. He got sick, recovered, but still thought worryingly of his future. And then, somewhat out of nowhere, he resigned his commission. His soldiering days were done. We have no certain explanation of this, because despite everything, Grant still wanted to stay in the service, or at least had expressed that thought shortly before. The reason was basically money. He wasn't sure how he would earn his pay outside of the army. But quite a few army men privately said that Colonel Buchanan forced Grant to resign. According to this version, Buchanan saw Grant under the influence and, in essence, told him to resign or face charges. According to this version as well, Grant's friends urged him to fight the charges and stand up for himself, and he did have a track record to fall back upon. So it's unclear why Grant left. Now Buchanan, years later confirmed that he forced Grant out under threat, but not the exact circumstances. And there is one odd aspect, which commentators noted even at the time. Grant was hardly unusual in taking to drink as mentioned. It's unclear then and now why Buchanan would pick out and target Grant, whose habits were not exceptional in that regard. And furthermore, Grant later would not hear a word against Buchanan, and Buchanan had no unkind word on Grant either. Here, I am going to suggest an explanation, and because I am trying to understand human motives and character, I could be far off. Again, this is my personal interpretation. I think Robert Buchanan may have been trying, in an unusual way, to do Grant a favor, and Grant took it. He could probably see that Captain Grant was miserable and despairing over a barren future, and missed his family, and the army simply had no place for his talents. I think he pushed Grant out of the army, not as punishment for drunkenness, but to hopefully prevent Grant from becoming a severe alcoholic in the very foreseeable future. Wherever Grant needed to be in that moment, 
it wasn't Fort Humboldt and it wasn't the army. But whatever the truth of the case, Ulysses S. Grant sent letters to both his father and wife. When they arrived, they hit like a thunderbolt. Now, Jesse Grant tried to have the resignation rescinded with the limited political influence available to him. Then-Secretary of War Davis simply responded, saying that the resignation had already been accepted, and he had no knowledge of the circumstances in any case. Now, as a side note, it was possible to reactivate a commission, but the Army would not normally do this. They had too many officers for too few soldiers, anyhow. In any case, Grant's return from California went far faster and smoother than his trek out had been, and he landed in New York on June 25th of 1854. He had no money left at all, and in fact had to go cap in hand to ask Simon Bolivar Buckner for some funds to assist. Buckner, another officer from West Point, obliged, and Grant also swallowed his pride and asked his father for a little money too. Now, somewhat hilariously and somewhat sad, Grant first ventured up to Sackett's Harbor to collect the funds owed by Alicia Camp. Trusting too much to honesty, he sent a message ahead, presuming that Camp would prepare something. Instead, Camp suddenly found it convenient to go someplace, any place else. We should pause to note that this was, by the standards of the time, extremely dishonorable behavior. Evidently, Camp never apologized for it, let alone repaid the debt, although by all accounts he made a considerable sum in California from the money Grant lent him. Since it's convenient to drop in from the narrative, Elisha Eli Camp would join the Union Army and serve appropriately enough as quartermaster during the Civil War. He survived the conflict, but died in 1867, at the age of only 44. Grant, however, finally returned home to a bittersweet reunion. He had little or no idea of how to make money, but at least, at long last, he could see his beloved wife again. And in addition to Julia and Fred, he laid eyes on his newest child, Ulysses Grant Jr., for the very first time. Some amount of financial hardship beckoned, but Grant intended to go to work and work hard. He had no money, but his wife had received 60 untilled acres in Missouri as a wedding present four years earlier. So the family went there, clearing the land and building their own house. Julia, ever patient with her husband, smiled when he dubbed it hard scrabble, and said she would take the name and the house both. Ulysses Grant was no carpenter, but he worked at it, and with help from the community, the results weren't half bad. If not a particularly fine home, it would do for now. The real problem was that Grant had nothing for seed or farm equipment, and certainly could not afford to raise any animals. He tried to borrow some literal seed money from his father, but Jesse Grant wouldn't help this time, although Colonel Dent would assist. By his own account, and the view of others, Grant worked hard for years on end to get by, planting and harvesting, cutting wood and selling it on the streets of St. Louis. Now this kind of work might lead nowhere, of course, and many thousands of other men were doing much the same. Through it all, Julia stayed by his side, and evidently complained but little about her changing fortunes. History owes her a considerable debt for her forbearance. Accustomed from childhood to a considerably higher standard of living, one that included slaves, she nonetheless loyally supported Ulysses in this time. Intriguingly, this period also saw Grant get involved with slavery for the first and last time, although in a way that rebounds more to his good name than the reverse. Colonel Dent, Julia's father, owned more than 20 slaves, and he sometimes sent them to assist the Grant family. Ulysses, unable to entirely express his feelings on the subject, 
said little about slavery or abolition in this time. However, in 1859, he would legally come into the ownership of a slave himself, one William Jones. But instead of selling him or working him, both financially attractive options, with a healthy grown slave, Grant manumitted him without price. But that was the future. For the next few years, the Grants welcomed a daughter and another son, while Ulysses worked like a dog to make ends meet. He endured the feeling of inferiority to his old army buddies, some of whom still walked the streets of nearby St. Louis. They, however, often made him feel welcome and talked with him of the old days of West Point in Mexico. 1857 proved to be the make-or-break year for Grant as a farmer, and, well, it would be the break year. Unfortunately, the country entered the brief but agonizing panic of 1857 just as Grant finally brought in a crop worthy of the name. He went to bed, eagerly dreaming of selling large quantities of vegetable stock to the market, and then Ulysses woke up to discover that his crop's value vanished overnight. He wound up just giving much of it away as he could to avoid letting it rot in the fields. In the aftermath of the panic, Grant once again resorted to selling firewood in the streets. There he happened to run into another old army buddy, William Tecumseh Sherman. Formerly a bigger success than Grant, he also faced near ruin in the panic when his California bank failed. They commiserated and judged that West Point had evidently not been a good school for farmers or businessmen. The next year proved even worse by the perverse willfulness of nature. Whatever the struggle in 1857, it had at least partly passed, and Grant had expected to clear well enough from the farm work in 1858. However, in June of that year, a nearly unimaginable cold snap saw a ground freeze. Again, in June. The crop was half ruined, and once again Grant found himself desperate to make ends meet. He also probably resolved in this time to completely leave farming behind him, as it appeared he was outright cursed in that regard. Ulysses moved on to St. Louis, looking for work day in and day out. Colonel Dent once again stepped in and arranged for Grant to start working alongside his nephew, Harry Boggs. The new firm of Boggs and Grant would sell locations about town and collect rents for landlords. It did not go terribly well. Grant spent each week apart from his wife and children, as they stayed at Whitehaven. Instead, he lived in a tiny back room with very little comfort. He also proved a remarkably poor debt collector, no better now than before, because he just didn't have the heart to demand money from those with little to their name. And while real estate was just then a good business to be in, the entirely honest Grant proved he, well, was no salesman. He just couldn't market anything except as how he saw it. No favorable pitch to help clients focus on the upside. Incidentally, Grant also never forgot a debt, as far as history knows. In one instance, Grant met up with his distant cousin-in-law, James Longstreet. A day after talking with him of days gone by, he found Longstreet and insisted on giving him five dollars in gold in payment of an old debt. Longstreet had evidently forgotten it entirely, but not Grant, and he would not be refused. The pair would not meet again until 1865. With the firm doing so poorly, Grant looked to alternatives. He more or less swapped hardscrabble with a house in St. Louis to move his family into, and accepted a $3,000 note in the process. However, the seller in effect cheated him by failing to pay off his own mortgage in the transaction. Grant could not get a title to the home, 
until he paid the mortgage personally. He sued the seller for repayment of the debt, but the courts moved so slowly that the case didn't actually conclude until a decade hence. In the meantime, Grant applied to become the county surveyor, but the St. Louis City Council declined despite overwhelming recommendations by his many friends and fellow officers. He likely could have done the job expertly, owing to his mathematical skills and insistence on doing a job correctly and effectively. However, the body was split with two Democrats and three Republicans. So yes, the local Republican Party denied their own future president the county surveyor post because they partly associated with the Democrat Colonel Den. Now, when he finally found good work in the Customs House, the chief collector, well, died, and the new appointee fired Grant because he wasn't a Democrat. That just about did it, and Grant had reached the limits of his finances. With nowhere else to go, and possibly wondering if the universe itself had personally declared war on him, Ulysses Grant took the stat he'd dreaded for years. He wrote to his father and asked for work. Now, if you don't recall, the one thing Ulysses never wanted to do was work in the family tannery business. And, well, his relationship with his father had never been entirely free or easy. Jesse Grant felt entitled to dominate his eldest son's life, and could never understand why Ulysses might object. He also revealed a little too much in trying to assume the honors his son had won in Mexico, or feeling that any problem of Ulysses' life might reflect badly upon himself. And finally, Jesse Grant had an irritating tendency towards self-importance at the best of times. However, he came through for Ulysses, at least at the moment. The younger Grant would be able to support his family. Ulysses departed for Galena, Illinois where Jesse Grant had moved with his younger children a decade earlier. Galena, in the far northwest corner of the state, was at that time a prosperous town close to the Mississippi, and one of the gateways to the far northwestern frontier. It seemed that Ulysses might live and perhaps die there, a slightly shabby clerk in a business he cared little for. Once again, however, he made a point of clearing all his old debts, even though he had to scrimp to do so. And there in Galena he stayed for the next year, as the Union began its slow slide towards war. Grant knew, of course, everyone could see the tensions ratcheting up day by day, and he talked with his brothers about this very issue. First, Southerners broke the Democrats, as they had broken the Whigs before, and fire-eating secessionists, thinking that they had gained some kind of great victory, brought the nation to the brink of war. Oddly enough, in this time Ulysses found himself happier in Galena, although his failure to thrive and repeated need to rely on family bothered him still. But he had his family near, and he could spend time with brothers that he had hardly known since boyhood. And he avoided alcohol, as he had since returning from California, though he smoked a pipe, which his wife disliked. Of some note is that he met one John Aaron Rawlins in this time. Some ten years younger than Grant, Rawlins had been too young to fight in Mexico, and he appears to have become something of an admirer of Captain Grant. Although he had received an education and become a lawyer, he retained a desire for great adventure, and he liked to hear Grant's stories. They made an interesting pair. Rollins talked freely about politics and everything else, while Grant spoke but little on the subject. Of some note is that Ulysses S. Grant had probably voted in only one presidential election to that date. Because he was in the army and often on the move, he had never really established residency or partaken in politics. However, in 1856, he voted for the Democratic candidate Buchanan, 
On the subject, he later remarked that he voted for Buchanan because he did not know him, and against Fremont because he did. And Grant didn't vote at all in the 1860 election because he had other things on his mind at the time. And yet that very November, events began to move, simultaneously all too quickly and with agonizing lethargy. First, South Carolina declared themselves out of the Union, followed quickly by Mississippi, and then other states began to break as well. And then came the long lull, when no one entirely knew what it all meant. Well, Grant knew. Even before Sumter, he heard through the pipeline of family news and army gossip that many of his old friends were resigning their commissions and heading home. Many more that he did not know very closely on a personal level, but whom he knew to be men of ability and character, followed suit. And perhaps most concerningly, many soldiers of the first rank from the Upper South hesitated, unwilling to openly declare their allegiance to the United States. And then came the bombardment of Sumter, and the bracing flash of lightning rendered everything suddenly clear. Across America, in big cities and small towns, people gathered for rallies and speeches. They volunteered, quite often organizing themselves into companies and sometimes regiments, more or less on the spot. The attack on Sumter resulted in a primal scream. Not rage, or even enthusiasm exactly, but a more raw and unfiltered emotion itself, the essence of identity. The Confederacy had attacked the Union. There was nothing more to be said. Still, the speakers would talk a great deal anyway, both immediately and then continuing before the war was done. April 13, 1861 became an unusually important day in Galena, and especially so for Ulysses S. Grant, the local tannery clerk. Here, we must introduce Elihu Washburn to the stage. He is a very important man who paved the way for Grant's rise to prominence. The nation owes him a remarkable debt of gratitude. By luck and perception, he saw how useful Grant might be to the cause, and made sure Grant could do his utmost. On April 13th, Washburn presided over a rally to whip up further for the cause, Galena and her surrounding county, though nestled in the Republican heartland, had only marginally voted for Lincoln. But Washburn, their congressional representative, had joined the Republican Party early, and he was not going to let his nation, his party, or his president be shamed in that way. In a very positive sign, Rawlins joined and added his own speech, no less patriotic, though he was a Democrat. I have been a Democrat all my life, he proclaimed. But this is no longer a question of politics. It is simply union or disunion country or no country. On April 18th, Grant received one of the most pleasant shocks of his life. Just after the earlier rally, the local notables had planned for a second, larger public meeting to organize a company for service. And as they planned, the chair stood up and asked for Captain Grant, the veteran, practically a war hero, to take over the meeting. And this he did. But instead of furthering the patriotic theme directly, he instead spoke of the hardships of soldiering and asked the volunteers to follow through on their promises, no matter the trials ahead. He would not think of this as clever. He would never consider himself clever. But there was more than a little wisdom to it. He might dissuade a fair-weather patriot from enlisting, but those who did join would probably share in firmness of purpose he helped organize the company and recruited mayor men for it, but he declined to take charge of either the company or a regiment formed thereafter. However, at Washburn's personal request, 
he accompanied the troops to Springfield. In the usual fashion, of course, he had to hurry up and wait until something turned up. So he waited, and a city suddenly transformed from a sleepy capital to an impromptu military camp. He nearly gave up waiting, and during his 39th birthday there, in a muddy city thronged with office seekers and would-be officers of every stripe. Grant, never one to politic in that manner, had no use for any of them. But Washburn intervened and asked Grant to be patient about it, which he was, but finally he wanted to go home and see Julie and the children again. As it happened, he was eating in the hotel before catching the evening train. Then, Illinois Governor Richard Yates called him over and asked him to put the plans on hold. The next morning, he brought Grant in to serve as a kind of military aide. Grant, never perturbed, just took over a desk and started writing out orders. He took over management of whatever needed doing, answered whatever questions came his way, and, in general, brought order from absolute chaos. A week later, Yeats sent him on a recruiting and drilling duty so he could put his brand of order into effect of the new center springing up. However, the assignment lasted all too briefly. At the end of May, Grant returned to Springfield for the small amount of pay promised. He did go back to Galena, although in fact he had no desire to sit out the war. What Grant did want, very much, was appointment as a colonel of the regular army. This only the president could give, and he wrote to the War Department accordingly. But to this day we do not exactly know what happened to the letter, except that it apparently got lost in the shuffle of papers and stuffed into the bottom of the drawer. And, and that was literal. It sat there forgotten for the next 15 years. In June, Grant went out to see General McClellan, then in command on the Ohio. McClellan, of course, seemed to go directly from strength to strength and now bore a major general's insignia. Though he had to swallow some amount of humiliation, Grant would ask if McClellan could employ him. Now at McClellan's headquarters, he was invited to wait because the general was busy. So Grant waited all day. And then he came back the next day and waited some more, but the general was still busy. Finally, he accepted that he was not likely to receive a friendly reception and departed, once more with nothing to show for his efforts. To this day, it's not entirely clear that McClellan was intentionally dodging him, but he probably was. He likely remembered Grant as a drunk from years earlier, or simply didn't care about some old officer. Or perhaps his staff was just rude and failed to communicate the situation to McClellan. But either way, Grant got back on the railroad to return to Illinois. But along the way, he received a telegram from Governor Yates appointing him Colonel of the 7th Regiment, which had not taken to military discipline very well. But after arriving in camp, he accepted offers from two Illinois politicians, John Logan and John McClernand, to speak to the soldiers and help get them on task. All three wanted to get all of the men to enlist for a longer period. Their initial was only 30 days, which was utterly useless. And, of course, to get them to buckle down to the discipline of soldiering. Logan and McClernand had just traded their suits for uniforms as well, and both would rise to high command and glory enough in the years to come. The volunteers didn't think much of Grant when he arrived. He wore a slightly shabby coat and no fine uniform. Yet when he spoke, he spoke to them as Americans and as soldiers. He told them he wouldn't enforce discipline. He trusted them to get up the bugle's morning call and get themselves to drill when asked. In extending this privilege to the men of this command, the colonel commanding hopes that his leniency will not be so abused 
as to make it necessary to retract it. All men went out of the camp as to reflect that they are gentlemen, in-camp soldiers. He would, in fact, deal somewhat more firmly with the officers than the rank and file. He required unhesitatingly that they prove their worth in a manner befitting an army officer, however they acquired their present rank. More to the point, he knew that soldiers fought with and beside their officers. If the officers failed, the regiment would be of no use. If they performed well, the soldiers would perform well. Now Grant did quickly return to Galena and then back to his regiment, barely pausing long enough to borrow some money for a quick uniform and, for the first time in years, a horse of his own. He seems to have made an impression enough, for by the end of the June, nearly every man had sworn in for three years of service. The 7th formally became the 21st Illinois at this time. Grant quickly showed his mettle. One of his first decisions came days into command. Ordered to travel across the state to the Mississippi River, he declined the offer of rail transportation and instead began marching. To do this, of course, required that he send orders ahead, detailing exactly where and when supplies should be placed so that the men could basically restock on the way. Now, apart from hardening his soldiers physically and in safe territory, he wanted to get them used to the necessity of quickly breaking camp each morning. If a soldier happened to be eating or half-dressed when the march started, he would just have to chase after the regiment in pursuit of his breakfast pants or dignity. After many years in the army, Grant had learned a thing or two about soldiers and Americans. He treated them with respect, punishing mistakes, but never with a sneer. Offenses were simply dealt with and then forgotten, and he made sure to commend good work in the process, earning the return respect of his men. They might not have been line infantry yet, but in spirit the 21st was well on its way to becoming a crack outfit. Once that march concluded, they were soldiers, even if they didn't know it yet. On July 11th, 1861, Grant received orders sending him across the river into northern Missouri, there to guard against possible partisan attacks and to prevent any Confederate-aligned force from holding junctions or burning bridges. Now, while they endured a little sniping from local ruffians, there was no real danger in it. On the 15th, however, Grant received new orders, and they would change his life. He was to move up and attack the camp of Brigadier Thomas Harris, an officer of the pro-Confederate State Guard. Even as a state refused to leave the Union, Harris sided with the pro-Confederate governor and Sterling Price. And, he was now reportedly camping out near the Salt River, not far away. Colonel Grant and his unit marched on the position, growing more anxious by the hour. He had fought in battles, yes, but this was something entirely different. He now had responsibility for the fighting, for his country, and for these men who had turned out to possibly die by his side. In his own words, I would have given anything then to have been back in Illinois, but I had not the moral courage to halt and consider what to do. Slowly mounting the hill, but expecting ambush at any moment from the dense woods, Grant discovered instead the marks of his former opponent's camp entirely abandoned. He later wrote, It occurred to me at once that Harris had been as much afraid of me as I had been of him, and it was a lesson that Grant never forgot. He never again let his fears control him before, and in that moment he retained mastery of himself. But from then on, he also never felt it while commanding again. In a way, that was the greatest victory possible. Colonel Grant defeated his own demons. 
whatever his flaws, whatever the failures of the last decade, whatever lay in store, he now knew that he would not break, he would not run, and he would continue to advance forward, even though sometimes the path seemed very risky and uncertain. He emerged from obscurity, from a decade of misadventure, and still would not give up. Many generals never learned that key lesson. And in more ways, the problems of all those years had given him a peculiar kind of fortitude and the tools needed in this hour. He had learned how to work hard when it seemed everything went against him, but also how to change course when one approach just wasn't working anymore. His weakness for drink taught him to appreciate and accept his own human weakness, as well as how to overcome it. And life outside the army gave him a perspective from the lower end, something many officers never acquired. Indeed, he gained a rapport with the soldiers that even career politicians usually lacked. No, Colonel Grant had not acquired all the skills of a great general, and yet he was on that path. Events would soon give him a chance to demonstrate, too, that he had acquired a deft strategic understanding that nearly all of the so-called great commanders of this era lacked. And finally, his understanding of the supply issues as quartermaster turned out to be one of the greatest advantages in military history. The Civil War became the first truly modern war, defined by the kind of mass concentration, and firepower armies could bear. Moving all of this, controlling the pipelines of material, and knowing when and how to bypass them, became the great and important means of waging war. In a conflict defined by production and transportation, everybody was going to hear of this quartermaster before the end. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.